This is the fifth episode in our podcast series, Menos in Medicine. I'm your host, Joanne Hunsberger, a pediatric anesthesiologist in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm speaking today with Dr. Doug Smucker. Dr. Smucker started his career as a family medicine doctor and later evolved into a palliative medicine doctor. He is Professor Emeritus of Family and Community Medicine at University of Cincinnati and currently works at Christ Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio as Medical Director of Palliative Medicine. It is so nice to be here with you today. (laughs) Thank you, Joanne. Let's start this um, podcast by, um, can you go back and tell me how your education at Goshen College affected your career? Yeah, it's been fun to to think about that as you you posed that question to me uh, earlier. And um, it was really, it was foundational. Um, I was there uh, at Goshen College from 1976 to 1980, graduated in 1980, and then moved on to medical school. And during my years at Goshen, a a very important mentor uh, for me was Dr. Willard Crable, who was just an amazing physician and educator and um, community member there in Goshen, uh, thinker, and quickly became a mentor for me there in a number of ways. And I, he influenced uh, a number of directions in my, in my career um, with the SST program there, international program there. He was the one that every student went to to get their shots. <laughs> and so I, I began to learn and become interested in um, international health issues through that, not only that experience of, of getting my uh, immunizations, but just having a chance to talk with him about his interest in, in that. Uh, as well in, in public health questions and policy questions, uh, he was very vocal about um, justice issues uh, around moving toward universal coverage of uh, health care coverage in, in the United States. Um, this was in the 70s. Um, we had some great conversations and discussions about that. And then pertinent to our conversation today, he, well, he was just very interested in medical ethics in general. You and I talked a little bit last week about a couple of key cases in, in U.S. history around the rights of patients to refuse certain kinds of medical care. I was thinking about that uh, this morning in 76, 1976 was around the time one of those first important cases, Karen Quinlan. And I remember talking with uh, Willard Crable about that case and the ethics around that case. Uh, just a number of great learning opportunities with, uh, with Dr. Crable. So, so that, as well as uh, many other teachers and mentors at Goshen that helped confirm my, my interest and direction toward medicine. Were those discussions about these ethical cases, were they one-on-one, or was it in group discussions? How did, how did that You know, happen? it was a long time ago, Joanne, <laughs> but uh, no, certainly uh, a number of, of one-on-one conversations with Willard, just because I had special interest in, in uh, understanding some of those issues. But I remember, and we had a pre-medical club of some sort, mm-hmm. I think that's what we called it, pre-medicine club or pre-medical club of students interested in going to medical school. And so there were a number of small group discussions that I remember as well on, on a wide variety of topics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you as a practicing physician make yourself open to those conversations with people that you mentee? Oh, you know, that, that happens in, in many ways. I think, you know, primarily it's learners who come alongside 
right now for learning palliative care or for hospice work when I was doing hospice work up until just recently. Common areas of interest and global health. You know, true mentorship is not something that you can force. It's something that happens based on those common areas of interest. How do you make yourself open to the mentoring relationship? You know, going into medical school, which mm-hmm. we've both done, done in different decades, we are focused on diabetes management. We're mm-hmm. focused on cardiovascular health. Mm-hmm. We're focused on how to fix a fracture. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like the focus was on bioethics. Ah. And as a Mennonite and growing up in the church, thinking about how faith interplays with my practice is ah. really important. Mm-hmm. So how maybe the, it's a broader question about how do we as practicing Anabaptist physicians make ourselves mm. open to ethical questions and how do we make our voices heard in sometimes our quiet way of practicing? Mm. And for me, maybe that's why I've found palliative medicine. Mm. And so maybe that's what I'm kind of leading you to is, um, has, is do you think that's why you've gotten to palliative medicine? Because mm. it has allowed you to explore ethical issues. I, I think that's part of it. But I think I do think it, it, it certainly connects back to, to faith and what I feel that I've been called to in my life through faith and the principles of, of what it means to really care for another human being, what it means to... Uh, to show love to another human being, what it means to live justly in this world, right? Just identifying what is most important in life, what grounds me as a person of faith, all of those questions. Palliative care, the work of palliative care, is really looking at all of, all of life in a way. It's, it's helping someone who is dealing with a difficult illness and asking how does this human being in front of me uh, continue to live in the face of a difficult illness? How do, how do they cope? You know, that brings up so many important things just about life in general, right? We cope through faith, we cope through family relationships, we cope with some sense of grounding and, and internal uh, res- resilience. I hope that we help uh, patients cope from uh, support from the medical care team. So yeah, bioethics and interest in ethics and ethical choices and how we work through difficult choices has been an interest of mine. But that bigger picture of how do we come alongside someone who's suffering, understand their experience and help them cope, help them through. Help them live as best they can, given their circumstance, given their illness, whether that's for just a very short time if prognosis is very poor, or sometimes uh, early in a diagnosis. And um, how do, okay, how do I negotiate life now, given this new diagnosis of a cancer or worsening heart failure or whatever it might be? Many people, when they hear palliative, they automatically think hospice. Uh What is the difference between those two? Hmm. It's a common point of misunderstanding. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes I I draw a simple diagram with a very large circle as being palliative care. Mm -hmm. And within that large circle, a much smaller circle that's labeled hospice. So hospice is a form of palliative care. And it's the form of palliative care that most 
people in the United States understand best. But palliative care is the larger idea of what I was just talking about, uh, and that is understanding the experience of a patient and their family in the face of really difficult illness, often life-limiting illness, and finding the best way to support them and help them live with quality of life, achieving goals as best they can given the presence of that difficult illness. So that is the larger idea of care for someone with a, with a very difficult or serious illness that often comes with really uh, difficult symptoms, whether it's pain or other symptoms. And then also caring for their family. I mean, the, our, our focus in palliative care, as it is in hospice, as one form of palliative care, uh, our focus not only on the patient, but also on uh, whoever is surrounding that patient as, as their circle of support, family and friends. I imagine that at some time in your practice, or maybe multiple times, you went to the bedside of a patient who you'd been asked to see for mm-hmm. palliative care, and you hit a wall. That patient got the stereotype of that you were the hospice doctor and that you were there mm-hmm. to usher them to death, <laughs> instead of really what you're talking about is ushering them through life. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you overcome that difficult situation? I think it's always best to come back to that central principle of helping someone live as best they can in their current circumstance, you know, and uh, cope with a difficult illness as best they can. Mm-hmm. Often we introduce palliative care in the hospital as an extra layer of support mm-hmm. while you're here and an extra layer of support for your family if they would like to talk through any issues related to your illness and caregiving or whatever the stress of the day might be, living life in, in light of a really tough circumstance. So when it's presented that way, it's rare for a patient to say, no, I don't want palliative care. <laughs> uh, because it is, it is simply that. It's extra support. And it's extra support not only from a physician perspective, but also with uh, our wonderful chaplains on the team, our social workers who are on our team, the nurses who are on our team. We have uh, support from a pharmacist as well. And then we access other care providers in the system as best we can, depending on the needs of the patient and the needs of the family. So when presented that way, and sometimes needing to explain specifically that we are not hospice, I am not from a hospice team, uh, but what it means while you're here in the hospital. And then that's true in the outpatient world as well. There are some palliative care programs that are not hospice. In most communities, uh, what's available in the outpatient world in terms of palliative care is not as robust often as it is when you're in the hospital. Uh, but there are some growing programs with that same bigger idea of just supporting the patient, supporting the family in the face of a difficult illness. You mentioned that you practice hospice as well? I did for uh, quite a few years. I'm not right now, mm-hmm. but I'm close, still closely connected with a number of the hospice organizations here in Cincinnati. And, you know, hospice and palliative care, in terms of the group of professionals that are practicing in that area of care, uh, tend to be a fairly small community <laughs> within the larger healthcare community. So here in Cincinnati, I know many of the of the physicians and uh, many of the nurses still that are in the hospice world yeah 
What is it like to go into a patient's home? Yeah, you know, it's a great experience. I want to get back to it uh, if I have opportunities sometime in the in the near future. Uh, home visits were really the first, my first step into hospice and palliative care. It really started back in 2003, doing hospice work in the community and doing lots of home visits. Uh, there were not many physicians in Cincinnati doing home visits back in 2003, but I, I just really relished the opportunity to be part of that care team with the hospice team um, and actually being in patients' homes. I saw it as a privilege, I mean, to be kind of instantly welcomed into a family circle during a very tender and intimate time for that family when someone is facing a short time of living, uh, whether it was days or weeks or, or months. Just by definition, hospice is care for patients who we expect have six months or less to live with their, with their condition. So to be welcomed in as a stranger and to be able to be part of the, of the circle of caregivers professional caregivers along with the family for that person just a just a great privilege and I would draw a line to my other interest in global health <laughs> and cross-cultural health and it and I would ask the student before we walked in into the door to look for cues or clues as to the sort of little culture of this family who is this family who where who is this patient you know, whether it was photographs on the wall or books they might see on the bookshelf or the television program that happened to be on when we walked through the door or whatever it might be to have their antenna up for kind of asking that question. Think of this household as a little mini culture that we're walking into. And just like um, work internationally to have one of the most important attitudes as we walk through that door of, of well, a couple of them. One is just curiosity, right? Curiosity for how this person lives and what's important to them and to their family and respect and to approach the, that patient and family with those attitudes. And uh, just some wonderful moments, many wonderful moments in home visits for me. In Can you tell me care. one that's really stayed with you? I'll say in general, some of the most tender times and times when I felt like I was able to really help a patient and particularly a family were in those final days of life. So um, sometimes hospice patients, when they're really struggling with pain or symptoms, uh, very, when they're very close to dying, and if they want, to, if one of their goals is to remain at home, it can be really stressful for family members because they're making decisions hour to hour about giving sometimes increasing doses of medications like morphine for pain or shortness of breath. It can be really hard for families. There can be um, sometimes uncertainty or even conflict that arises in those final days within the family circle. Uncertainty about are we doing, really doing the right thing here? Uncertainty about how to handle a crisis if it comes up, a crisis of pain or symptoms or Sometimes new relationship conflicts can emerge. It's a stressful time for families, something that needs to be resolved. And so I would say, you know, the home visits where I was able to either join with the hospice nurse or pay a visit to the, to the patient's home on my own 
uh, during that time, during a time of crisis in those final days of life, to listen well, to help them come to some resolution about sometimes readjusting what their goals are at that at that moment, identifying ways to cope and get through that day and into the next day, and just help them through those difficult days, sometimes difficult days. And especially if it was important to the patient to remain at home at the time of dying to help that happen for the patient um, and for death to be a peaceful time, a meaningful time for that family. Those are the visits, the, the experiences in home hospice care, I would say, that the most memorable for me. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts or advice about how to make those end-of-life conversations easier? I think families sometimes struggle to talk to their loved one who's dying about mm-hmm. end of life, and sometimes the the patient who's dying is, has knows they're dying but has a hard time talking about it with their families. Mm-hmm. Have you seen or had any situations that just like said, "Oh, that was done well," and mm-hmm. you know, and that's made you or enabled you to help other families? You know, if it's hard for family members to begin these conversations, so having help with that is often needed, whether it's help from resources, some very good resources I think now that are available online uh, for families. The Conversation Project is one here locally in Cincinnati. There's a website called uh, Conversations of a Lifetime, which is sponsored by one of our hospice organizations, but it's really an effort to help families have these conversations about what would be um, really well in advance of a difficult illness, what would be important to you if you, if you had a really difficult illness or a life-limiting illness? You know, families often need support with that or ideas about how to get it started. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was referring to is that I, I think the best advice is to ask those, just ask open-ended questions about what would be most important to you, what would, what would be your goals so as an adult child, ask your parents what their goals are and have those frank conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And let them talk. And let them talk, yeah. Of course, the, the conversations are very different if, if, um, uh, if they're conversations when your loved one is still well, <laughs> but you want to understand what their wishes would be in the future if they had um, a really difficult illness or got to the point where the adult child needed to make decisions for them. So that's the advanced directives mm-hmm. conversation. In, in terms of palliative care, in the face of a, of a life-limiting illness or a really difficult illness, uh, that conversation obviously is different. But it still, at its core, has really careful listening and open-ended questions as the most important aspect of those conversations. That comes back to understanding what is most important to that person in in the face of, of really difficult circumstances. And what would they like to achieve? What would their goals be? What would be most important moving forward? Television medicine is very different from real medicine, and we see patients getting CPR and magically coming back to life. Mm-hmm. But then sometimes when patients get... Um, medical conditions that we kind of know is going to end eventually in death, like certain cancers or Mm -hmm. 
recurrent heart failure, and we know that that CPR is just not going to work the same way for that patient. And they get asked the question, should we make you a DNR? Hmm. What does that mean? Hmm. You know, it's, it's one of a number of important conversations when um, life becomes more fragile, right? So the patient with, as you mentioned, end-stage heart failure, for example, or in the later stages of a cancer that may not have good active treatment, whether it's chemotherapy or radiation, that would be helpful for that person. And I want to put it in the context of, again, of that broader conversation about what's most important to you. And what are your goals moving forward? Um, the conversation about CPR is a hard one because it is a, really a conversation about the time of dying. And it's easy to kind of dance around that difficult fact, but conversation about CPR really is a conversation about a, a moment when your heart stops. CPR is an attempt to bring you back, and it comes with a number of outcomes that, that we can talk about. You know, the hopeful outcome, if you do want us to attempt CPR, is that we bring your heart rate back, your heartbeat back, but that usually means a journey then, um, a journey that usually means a stay in, the, in, in intensive care, for example. And as you become more and more ill with congestive heart failure, other chronic conditions, the chance that attempting CPR is going to be helpful to you to bring you back to a certain level of functioning, a quality of life, unfortunately that chance becomes smaller and smaller. I view that conversation as one where we're presenting CPR as an option to the patient and um, the chance that that intervention is going to be helpful to them often gets smaller as time goes by with with life-limiting illness. So choosing not to attempt CPR. That often fits, and it fits best for patients, let's say someone who has a terminal illness with cancer, and our bigger conversation about what is most important to you at some point in that cancer, if the patient says, what's most important for me is, is family, time at home, the things that I enjoy at home, I would really like to avoid coming back to the hospital. It's important to have that conversation first to understand what's important to this patient at this time in their life. And then that gives the context to talk about something like CPR. For that patient who's near the end of their life, wants to remain at home, is willing to talk about the time of dying when it comes and if they want to be at home at that time, talking about CPR, it, it would fit to, for them to choose a do not resuscitate status and to let others around them know that that's what they would want when the time of dying happens, that we would allow that to be uh, a peaceful time and not try to bring them back with CPR or other interventions. So that was a long answer to your question and <laughs> to that it's answer your question. Because you answer it so thoroughly. <laughs> you make it make sense. Uh, yeah. Whether some whoever's listening is a provider or yeah. a lay person at home. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thanks for kind of helping us understand the difference between palliative medicine and hospice. I think there's a lot of misconceptions. It's kind of a fairly new specialty. It is. It's, an, it's a relatively new specialty for physicians. 
There have been physicians, well, really since, uh, I would say, uh, primarily since the beginnings of hospice care in the United States, which uh, happened in the 70s into the early 80s, and there were a small number of physicians that joined with those early hospice teams. You know, the needs for this idea of extra support from an interdisciplinary team, whether it's a hospice team or a team in the hospital, it has increased over time. Part of the reason for for the increased need for palliative care support has been because of the blessings that we've had in in uh, with modern medicine, where we've become more and more successful in helping patients live longer and longer with chronic illness. But along with those blessings come the need for extra support as those chronic illnesses become more severe. That need has included the important addition of physicians to those team, teams, uh, often as leaders of palliative care teams. The specialty emerged from that need for uh, palliative care, uh, especially in the hospital setting, but also with hospice. So every hospice team has a physician who is part of the team. Some hospitals have uh, only part-time physician support, but more and more, especially in larger um, community hospitals and in medical centers, physicians with palliative care as their specialty are really important members of the overall care team in that hospital. For example, here at Christ Hospital now we have a fellowship training program. That fellowship training program is a one-year program and that leads to board certification for a physician. You talked a little bit about how your education at Goshen was really foundational for you and for choosing your path in medicine. Can you talk a little bit about how, a little bit more about your faith and your career and maybe, you know, how those have evolved Mm. together? I think it would be really difficult for me to do the work that I'm doing now without having my faith, my faith as a as a Christian believer, foundational teachings uh, in the Mennonite Church and now my ongoing involvement. I I mentioned to you that we're very involved in a church in our community. It's a a Presbyterian church in our neighborhood. It gives me grounding personally. It gives me a sense of, of an anchor, a grounding in terms of understanding the world and God working in the world and understanding what it means to love others. What does it mean to show love to others? All of that is grounded in my faith. All of that comes back to to faith. Through the years, uh, and especially as an Anabaptist, issues around peace and justice were very important to me, continue to be very important to me. So peace on many levels, right? My work in palliative care, sometimes is focused on bringing peace to an individual who is dying from an illness uh, and our team bringing peace to that situation or to a, fam- a difficult family situation to help families who are having disagreements to listen better to each other, to come to some resolution in difficulties in their relationships. Sometimes it bubbled to the surface because of the stress of a terminal illness now that's within their family circle for, for a loved one. You know, all of those things point back to my to my faith, my my personal faith, and also to the things that I've learned as a member of faith communities through my whole through my whole life. I would say what I learned, especially growing up in the Mennonite Church, and the emphasis on strong community 
translates in some ways to what I see as very important in palliative care, and that is the strength of the interdisciplinary team as a community, as a community of professionals. You know, there's there's some parallels for me in terms of the uh, just the qualities of what does it mean to walk together, to do that well, uh, to respect each other, um, to listen well to each other, to make decisions together. I think many of the ways that I have learned to help lead a professional team came from what I learned about community from church. So instead of the traditional hierarchy of medicine, it sounds like one of the things that your faith has taught you is the community of medicine. Mm -hmm. Because of this interdisciplinary team, that does include a chaplain, Mm -hmm. nurses, Mm -hmm. social workers, and just more of a, which is very rare in in the medical community, this palliative medicine team approach Mm -hmm. to caring for a patient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There are some teams that you'll see in the hospital where the physician is clearly in charge. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, the physician may have a couple of nurses with him or her, uh, maybe a pharmacist. Say the ICU team here has a whole a group of residents uh, walking alongside a, a nutritionist and a pharmacist and a nurse specialist, perhaps uh, the nurse coordinator for the ICU, but clearly in the center and at the lead is the physician who is making pronouncements, so to speak, you know, and giving orders for what comes next. Um, So that's a physician-centric model, which is just still very common in healthcare. I would say, at least here at Christ Hospital and our team, we've really aimed at a different model. And that is, I mean, community is a good word for it, but um, one of the words that we've come to is, rather than interdisciplinary, is a transdisciplinary team where even the circles of expertise begin to overlap a little bit more. So as a physician, for example, I've become much more aware of important concepts that social workers focus on and that our chaplains focus on. Our chaplains have become aware of issues around pain and other symptoms for our patients um, in a greater way than other chaplains in the hospital, I would say. There are other overlaps between specialties that also bring us together into a common understanding of working together that we each have equally important skills and gifts to add to the care of the patient. And, and I do think, uh, you know, for me personally, aiming for that, aiming for that strong connection as a team and respect for each other uh, rather than a hierarchy of, of importance <laughs> in the team, some of that does uh, does go back to very strong principles, both from my faith and just learning from being in a strong community of faith growing up. From a Mennonite perspective in particular, where community is so highly valued. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. I think it's very helpful to explore some of these terms that we hear but don't really understand and to think about the specialty that really can help patients live better at the end of life. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate hearing about your faith and how it's interacted with your career. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be great for other providers to hear and also for other people listening to the podcast mm-hmm. with just general interest in, in the health the healthcare topics. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. You are welcome. It's, it's been great talking with you.
Thank you for joining us for our Menno HealthCast brought to you by the Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship and the Mennonite Incorporated. I would enjoy your feedback and comments about the podcast series, so please go to the Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship website at mennohealth.org, where you can find contact information or email us at info at mennohealth.org. Become a member today of MHF so you can keep up with MHF programs, including announcements about upcoming regional meetings or college campus meetings. Your financial support helps make this production, our webinars, student grants, and the annual gathering possible. Thanks for listening.